appreciate very much Brother Tim's effort this morning, his message, uh, the subject that needs to be rightly divided. I thought the Lord blessed him to be able to do that. By nature, we can't come to God, but we know all the Father give us, give to the Son, shall come to Him through regeneration. And then when you have life and you're under the burden of sin and the problems and burdens of this world, the Lord says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. That doesn't apply to everybody, but it applies to those who are burdened and heavy laden. And I trust we know by experience uh, what the Lord meant by that and also that rest that the Lord promised that we've been blessed to receive when we've done that. Uh, oftentimes we speak about the attributes of God. We speak about God's goodness and God's um, truthfulness, uh, things of this nature. But there's three that we oftentimes try to put before the Lord's people, and that's the Lord's omnipotence, the Lord's omnipresence, and the Lord's omniscience. Omni just simply means all. So we say the Lord is omnipresent, that means that He's everywhere. There's nowhere where the Lord's not. Okay? Read Psalms 139, and David will explain that in his experience. And then there's God's uh, omniscience, which means he, he knows all things. He understands all things. There's nothing God does not know. God's never learned anything. God's never forgotten anything. He knows the past, the present, and the future. And then there's God's omnipotence, which means he has all power. And he has all power in heaven and earth. That's what he told his disciples in Matthew 28 and 10. Just before he left this world, he told the apostles there, he says, all power is given to me in heaven and also in earth. And that gave them great encouragement to know as they went out to try to fulfill the commission he'd given unto them, that this one who had all power on earth also promised he'd be with them all the way even to the end of the world. So we need to always remember that. And remember God's attributes. And understanding this will help you come to an understanding of the true doctrine of God. For example, if you understand that God is omnipotent, then how do statements such as God would like to do something, but he can't? How would that fit that? God is trying to do something. God is, would like to do something. That doesn't fit in the fact that he's omnipotent. If he has all power in heaven and earth and purpose to do something, he's simply going to do it. When it comes to saving his children from their sins, he's going to do it. He doesn't, uh, uh, he's not wringing his hands in despair and walking back and forth, pacing the floor, wondering about this one and that one. God is omnipotent. He has all power in heaven and earth. There's no power to match his power. His power is far superior to the power even of Satan himself. God is holy. If you believe that God is holy, then you understand that God cannot be the author of sin, the author of confusion. If you understand some of the attributes of God, it helps you rightly divide the word of truth and not be misled by some of the false teachings, doctrines of this world. I want to take a look at two of these this morning in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that maybe you may not have noticed. But anyway, I want to take a look at his omniscience and his omnipotence. And I'd like to take a look at three different passages concerning this. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 7, we'll find where the time of the Passover had come and the time of the killing of the Passover had come. And the Lord tells two of his disciples, he tells Peter and John to make ready for the Passover. And they ask the Lord, so where shall we make ready for it? And the Lord tells them, he says, you go into the city. And you shall find a man, or a man shall find you actually, a man shall meet you bearing a pitcher of water. He says, you follow that man. And you follow to, to the house that he goes to, and that house will have a goodman in it, a master. And you'll say to the goodman of the house, the master saith, 
My time is at hand. The master saith, notice now, even though it is Peter and John who are the messengers, when they bring the message, just like the Lord gave it to them, it's just like the, the master is saying himself to them. The master saith, I shall eat the Passover of my disciples in your house. He says, in this house you shall find a large upper room, a chamber, a large upper room, and it shall be furnished, and there go and make ready. Now we notice here the Lord gives details that only the Lord can know. That's his omniscience. He tells him ahead of time exactly step by step what they're to do and what's going to happen. He says, when you go into the city, a man shall meet you. Now, Jerusalem was a busy place. So there was a lot of people going and coming. But he says, this man will be bearing a pitcher of water. That'll be your sign. And that was highly unusual for a man to be doing that to begin with. But no doubt this was a servant of the house. And we notice he wasn't going to get water. He'd already went and got the water and was coming back. He had a pitcher of water. The pitcher had water in it. It wasn't an empty pitcher. The Lord knew that. The Lord knew ahead of time this man would take a pitcher and go to the source of water, fill the pitcher up, and would be coming back. And he and these two disciples, Peter and John, would meet one another. He says, you go into the city. It says, a man bearing a pitcher of water shall meet you. And then you shall follow him. You will follow him to a certain house. Now, the Lord could have just given an address, I suppose. If I was going to tell you to go somewhere, I'd, I'd try to give you an address, tell you how to get there. Uh, the Lord knew exactly where this house was. He knew was it, who was in this house. He knew everything about the house. He knew about the man that was bearing the pitcher of water, where he'd been, what he'd gotten, and where he would be. And the Lord tells Peter and John this ahead of time. And Peter and John do as the Lord commanded, and it came to pass exactly like the Lord said. Exactly. Now, if somebody come to your house, they, and you, they knock on the door, and you go, and you meet them, whatever, and they said, uh, oh, we want to use your house to throw a party. You going to let them use your house to throw a party? Uh, we going to use your house to have a, have a meeting, have a business meeting. Or are you just going to step aside and say, okay, you can have my house for a business meeting? See, I don't think so. Here with the Lord's omniscience is brought to our attention, but also his omnipotence because he had the power over the will of men. This is not the way somebody would normally react. But when Peter and John go there, they meet the man, just like the Lord said. And the Bible says, just like the Lord said, I mean, to every detail, every T was crossed, every dot, I was dotted, just like the Lord said, a man met them bearing a pitcher of water. So they know that's come to pass. And then they are to follow him, which they do. They follow him. And they come to a house. It says, you follow him, you enter into the house, and you say to the goodman of the house. And it's interesting to me how uh, certain words in the Bible just, just fit so perfectly. <laughs> Would you expect anybody to be in this house other than a goodman? <laughs> you think the Lord is going to uh, eat the Passover supper in somebody's house who is not a goodman? I mean, the goodman of the house. This is a good man. A goodman of the house is there. And you shall say to him, the master saith, my time is come. Now, yes, it was time for the Passover to be, uh, you know, carried out. But I believe the Lord had something else under consideration. My time has come. Remember how many times in John's gospel do you find where the Lord said, my time has not yet come. The Lord knew when his time was going to come. And he says, my time has come. My time to suffer, my time to die, my time to be an offering, sacrifice to the Father, on behalf of those whom the Father gave unto me, that time has come. 
and I must eat this Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples go in, they find the large upper room. Notice he didn't say upper room, he says it's a large upper room. He knew the size of the room. There's a large upper room, and it's completely furnished. That's also, I, picture, I think, a picture of things that God's provided for his people, and specifically like the church, his own church. He said, upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You think the Lord built the church and didn't furnish it? You think the Lord built his church and didn't put anything and everything in it that needed to be in his church to last from the beginning of time to the end of time? Or from when he built it 2,000 years ago? Surely if the Lord built his church, he would furnish it, right? It's a turnkey job, so to speak, right? <laughs> Even when Israel went into the land of Canaan, he says, you're going to have cities you didn't build. He says, you're going to have wells you didn't dig. There's going to be vineyards you didn't plant. When Israel went in and occupied the land of Canaan, everything they stood in need of was there. It was already furnished for them. And this large upper room is furnished with everything they stood in need of to carry out the Passover supper. And then the Lord says to them, with desire, have I desired to eat this Passover supper with you? This is not the first Passover supper the Lord ate with, those, with his disciples. The Lord Jesus Christ was born among the Jewish people. He kept the law to a jot and a tittle. But it will be the last one. And in this last Passover supper, the Lord's going to eat it with his disciples. And then he's going to take from that Passover supper, he's going to take the unleavened bread and the wine. He's going to bring it over here. He's going to close the Passover supper out because he now has become the Passover. Jesus becomes the Passover. When God uh, gave instructions for Israel to keep the Passover, what, what, why was that? Because that was the tenth and final plague in Egypt. And the blood of the lamb was put on the signpost and the lentil. And at midnight, God passed through and God passed over. He passed over what? He passed over every house where there was blood. And where there was no blood, the firstborn was slain. But where there was blood, the firstborn was delivered. He is our Passover. He is our Passover. So when God sees us, he sees us through the blood of the lamb. It's the Lamb that's put away our sins. It's the Lamb that's redeemed us. Uh, the blood of the Lamb has redeemed us. The blood of the Lamb that's uh, remitted our sins and purchased from our sins. Jesus is the Passover. So we don't eat that Old Testament Passover as the Jewish people did. It was pointing to the greater Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ. So then Christ takes this, institutes what we call the Lord's Supper, the communion. And I cannot emphasize how significant that is, how important that is as we honor God that we sit at the communion table and understand that unleavened bread represents his body and that wine represents his blood and the separated represents his sufferings and his death. And it's through that work and that work alone that we have salvation. Through that work and that work alone that one day we'll spend eternity with God and be in the glory world based upon what we observe that's symbolic on that communion table. I'm telling you, that's a significant and important ordinance in the Lord's church is to be observed with all prayer and diligence. He notice here, his omniscience and his omnipresence, well, his omnipotence. The Lord knew ahead of time where this house was. The Lord knew ahead of time it had a large upper room. The Lord knew ahead of time it was furnished. The Lord knew ahead of time there was a servant. He knew ahead of time the servant would be going to get water on this day, on this occasion. He says to the disciples, when you go into the city, a man bearing a pitcher of water is going to meet you. 
Those disciples, the Bible says, did as Jesus commanded. That's always good counsel. But <laughs> try to counsel anybody. Else. Just do what the Lord said and you'll be going to be okay. <laughs> it's not complicated. It's what the Lord said. Do, just do it. Is that not what Mary said in John chapter 2? The first miracle when Jesus turned the water into wine? She told those disciples on that occasion, What shall he say to you? Do it. I can't give you better advice than that. That's just the best advice I've ever read in the Bible. In the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters, is a book of counsel, a book of wise sayings, and, and you ought to try to study and apply them to your life. But the greatest advice I could ever give anybody is what Mary gave to those disciples, and she said, What shall he say to you? Do it. <laughs> you can't go wrong with that advice, right? You can't go wrong if you do what the Lord said do. He's not going to tell you to do something wrong. And so then what God commanded. In fact, in Matthew 26, it says, As the Lord appointed them, they did it to a jot and to a tittle. They followed it step by step. Now the Lord here has borrowed a house to use. And you know the Lord borrowed a lot of things. I don't like to borrow things. I'm just afraid uh, something will happen to it while I've got it. But sometimes I do. And I remember growing up on the farm, uh, uh, one of the neighbor, neighbor farmers one time said, hey, don't buy anything you can borrow. <laughs> so I guess that made a little sense. Farmers are always lending to each other, borrowing from one another. You know, he didn't have this. His neighbor farmer had it. He borrowed from him and didn't do the same thing. So uh, don't buy something you can borrow. But my dad always taught me if you borrow something, you take it back in better shape than, you than when you got it. You give it back in better shape, better condition than the condition you got it in. You be sure you do that. Okay. Well, the Lord borrowed a lot of things. The Lord borrowed this house, this large upper chamber for a while. It wasn't his house. It wasn't his house. The Lord borrowed a ship one time to get on, to go to the other side. That wasn't his ship. The ship belonged to the fishermen. But the Lord got on the ship, and uh, the Lord got on as a guest, but he soon became the master. He borrowed the ship. I'm gonna, you're going to see in a little bit where he borrowed an ass. But he also borrowed a, a sepulcher. It wasn't his sepulcher, it belonged to Joseph Arimathea. The Lord borrowed things. But I can assure you, when the Lord got through with the use of it, it was in better shape it was before he ever borrowed it. So here we find where the Lord borrowed this house. He borrowed a large Dutch room. He borrowed everything that was in there because it was totally furnished. And the disciples trusted the Lord. The disciples did as the Lord said. The disciples did as they were appointed. They did as God commanded them and found everything just exactly like the Lord said. In fact, that's what it said. And just as the Lord said. Would you expect anything any different? Would you expect anything any different? Sometimes maybe someone does something for you or tells you about something you know and you, you do it and you come out and say, well, it was just like you said. <laughs> but it's all I've had some experience when it wasn't. <laughs> But I can tell you, whatever the Lord said, it's going to be just exactly like the Lord said. Now, we come to the book of Mark, chapter 11. And you'll find this is also recorded in Matthew, chapter 21. Luke, chapter 19. You've got to find where the Lord comes near Jerusalem. And he tells two of his disciples to go into the village nearby. It says, when you do, you go to a certain place. And you're going to find an ass tied and a coat by her. You loose them and let them go and bring them to me. And 
when the owners asked you, what are you doing? You simply tell them that the Lord hath need of them and they'll let you go. Now he's going to send two disciples. We don't know who these two were. Now, Back in Luke chapter 22, we find where the Lord sent Peter and John. The Lord always sent his disciples out in pairs. Now, that's something to consider. Friendship and companionship is wonderful, isn't it? Uh, anything, uh, you know, you enjoy doing, it seems like you enjoy it better if you've got somebody with you. That's why I asked Karen to marry me 52 years ago. I decided she, she'd be the person to stay with me the rest of my life. I needed somebody. I needed a companion. I needed a friend. And she's been the best friend I've ever had in life. She's been my best companion I could possibly have. She's somebody I can talk to, somebody I can relate to, somebody I can explain things to, somebody I can uh, share things with. And I love her companionship. And so God's people need companionship. They need friendship. That's why... Zoom meetings are wonderful and streaming is wonderful. I'm so thankful for that technology, my friend. It is not appropriate substitute for in-house worship. You need to be in the house of God, be with the people of God. So you need companionship. You need the friendship. And I'm going to tell you, ministers need one another. I know by experience. I need a minister every once in a while uh, just to talk to just to explain things to, get some advice from, get some counsel from. And so the 70 the Lord sent out, in addition to the apostles, he sent them out what? Two by two. You find that to be the case time and time again. You find Paul and Barnabas. You find Peter and John. They went out in pairs. They needed each other's friendship and companionship and encouragement and support as they went trying to minister to the Lord's people. You rarely see one out by himself. So we find the Lord sending two of these disciples here. He tells me exactly what's going to happen. He says, you go into the city, to the village nearby you. He says, there you shall find where two two ways meet. Now, why is that in there? Where two ways meet. You know, along the journey of life, I found myself oftentimes where two ways meet, and I got to decide which way to go. <laughs> uh, how am I going to decide that? I want you to think about it a little bit, brethren. I want you to think about it, sisters, this morning. How many times in life do you come to the fork in the road, and you've got to make a decision? What are you going to do here? Do you take it to the Lord? Do you ask the Lord for guidance and direction? You need to, I need to, I got to know which way to go. So they go in there, and the Lord says, you'll find a coat tied. Matthew says there was two, there was the, the, uh, there was the ass and the coat tied by her, where never had man rode. Now notice this. Never man set upon this beast. He says, now you're to loose them and bring them to me. And someone says unto you, what are you doing? You say, well, the Lord hath need of them. Now, how many times have you ever heard preachers preach and you might hear somebody say, well, the Lord don't need anything. He's got everything. That is true to a great extent. But here the Bible specifically says the Lord needed this animal. He needed this animal to, to do something very important with. So the disciples go to do just like he said. They go into the village. As they go in there, where they go to where two ways met, 
And lo and behold, there's the ass tied in a coat by the ass's side, just like the Lord said. Any surprise? How did he do? Because the Lord is omniscient. The Lord knows all things. The Lord knew all about this uh, situation as he gave it to him ahead of time in detail. And it came to pass just exactly like the Lord said. So they loose them. And just like the Lord said. Somebody says, what are you doing? It'd be like you going out here and somebody getting in your car. And you, what are you doing? Well, uh, so-and-so needs your car right now. You know, well, you better find another one. You ain't taking mine, right? But you see how the Lord's omnipotence comes in. It's because the Lord overruled their will. This is not a natural reaction of somebody. He's got two of his animals out there, and they're tied. He's got the ass and the coat and the fold of an ass, and they're tied, and here come strangers up there, and got loose them, and they're taken away with them. And when they asked the question, what are you doing? They said, well, the Lord hath need of them. He says, they let them go. Is that a natural response? Is that a natural reaction to that? See, the Lord not only knew about all this, here's his omniscience, but the Lord's omnipotence enters into the picture because the Lord overruled the wills and the normal reaction response these people would have had otherwise. The Lord knew what he was going to do. He would overrule it. That's not the way man would normally respond. They responded totally different. And so they bring them to the Lord. Now, the Lord's going to get on this ass, going to ride it into Jerusalem triumphantly as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. So let's take a look at the picture just for a moment here. The Lord could have gotten any animal he wanted to to ride into Jerusalem. The Lord... Could have got a, a, a beautiful horse to get on and rode in Jerusalem, but he didn't do that. You know, in the book of Romans chapter 12, we're told to condescend to those of low estate. Our Lord Jesus Christ, even those Lord of Lords and King of Kings, came all the way from heaven's pure world down here to this earth among sinful men. But who did he hang around with? Just use that language. Who, who did he mix with? Who did he interact with? Who did he visit? Who did he, uh, uh, you know, have dealings with? It was those of low estate. The Lord gets on this ass and comes riding into Jerusalem just a few days before his crucifixion. He's Lord of Lords and he's King of Kings. Now why this animal here? And notice the scripture makes it very clear to us that it's an animal that no man had ever set on. That means he had not been broken. Nobody had ever set on him. Nobody had ever ridden him. He just don't get on an animal like this that hadn't been broke and not expect... <laughs> a turbulent experience, right? If I was going to get on a horse, and somebody said, well, this horse isn't broken, I, they'd have to hog tie me and put him on. I tell you that, I'm not going to get on a horse that hadn't been broken. Uh, you know, you see these cowboys and everything get on these bulls, and uh, I'm telling you, <laughs> uh, everything's not for everybody. I tell you that right now. And I tell you what, that's not for me. I like to watch it, but that's not for me, I tell you that. The Lord gets right on. They, they sat him on him, and he wrote him in. There was not one problem. He didn't buck one time. How is that? Because God overruled the will, the nature of this animal right here. Wrote him in triumphantly, and this is fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. In Zechariah 9.9, the Old Testament, we find where the writer says... Rejoice, O Jerusalem, and shout, O Zion, for thy king cometh, riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass, 
just in having salvation. Here this is fulfilled to a jot and to a tittle. Just like Zechariah said that it would be several hundred years before it took place. The Lord is riding in triumphantly like Zechariah said he would on an ass, the coat, the fold of an ass. One that had never been ridden before. One that was not broken. But Jesus, my friends, broke it. Jesus rode in. And we notice that the little children, uh, they took their garments and they spread them out before Jesus and they cut down the palm branches and put them out before Jesus. And they come riding in. And remember what the, the prophet said? Shout, O Jerusalem, rejoice, O Zion. That was shouting and rejoicing going on. But it wasn't with the chief priests, scribes, and elders. It wasn't with the higher officials. It wasn't with the Sanhedrin. It wasn't with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They won't shout and they won't rejoicing. But it was the common people that were. And they were saying, Blessed be the name of the blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. He cried out, Hosanna. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They recognized the person of Jesus Christ. They believed this was God's beloved son. They believed this was the one that was Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Did he look like a king? Did he have a gold crown? Oh, he did not. Was he riding a, a great white horse? He did not. He's riding upon an ass, the coat, the photo of an ass, a poor man's travel. This is not the way kings travel. This is not where the, a king, if you saw a king in that day coming in, he would not be riding upon an ass, the coat, the photo of an ass. He'd be riding upon a horse, a great white stallion, no doubt. Oh, he'd have on the king's robe and the king's apparel and he'd have the king's crown right on his head. That's not the picture we have here of Jesus, is it? Notice what the prophet said. It says he's just. That means he's perfect. He's sinless. He's righteous. He's holy. He's just. In the book of Acts, on two occasions, we find where the writers refer to the Lord Jesus Christ as the just one. Spell capital J-U-S-T, capital O-N-E. He is the just one. And I can assure you of all the mass of humanity, there's just one, just one. And thank God this just one was willing to come in this world and take our sins upon him to the tree of the cross and make us just in the sight of God. Oh, that's, that's the marvel of grace, isn't it? How that God can take our sins and just wash them away. How God can take our sins in his own blood, which is red, and cleanse us from our sins. That's why Isaiah the prophet wrote like he did. In Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though your sins be red like crimson, says they shall be as white as snow. God took snow and he took wool. There's nothing whiter than these two uh, things I just mentioned in nature than, than a lamb when the lamb's clean now. <laughs> you know, a clean lamb. And snow as it first comes down. I'm telling you, we had that snow the other day and it was so beautiful. I've seen snow all my life, but every time it snows, I just, uh, I just enjoy seeing it. Now, I don't enjoy the mess it makes, and I enjoy a lot of other things that comes along with it. But the snow itself is pure, it's, it's clean, it's, it's white, it's coming right down from heaven, brother, just like Jesus did. He said, that's the way your sins are. He says, they're red like blood, and they're like crimson. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, they're washed away and you may be made purer than the, than the driven snow and whiter than the wool of the lamb. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> it's just wonderful. I wish I had better words to use. I wish I had greater superlatives to use. If I'd known the Lord was going to call me to preach, I'd have been a better English student. 
I just couldn't understand why. I don't know why this is going to do me, how this is going to do me any good. Diagramming sentences and this, that, and the other. I tell you, I got so sick of all that, but I wish I'd have been a little better student now in some ways. You never know what's going to happen down the road, right? I'd have had a better command of the English language, perhaps. I'd have greater words, better words. But on the other hand, I might have learned words you wouldn't have no the definition of, so I'd be better off not to use them, right? <laughs> I can understand Isaiah's words. I understand what crimson is. I understand what red is. I understand what snow is and wool is, don't you? The Lord uses language you can comprehend, you can understand. He says, you're going to be just like that. When I see you, I'll see white. <laughs> I will not see red, I will see white. Oh, the Lord comes riding in. The prophet said, just, he is just. And he's having salvation. Here's the Savior riding in triumphantly just a few days before his crucifixion. The people in that city hated him, but the Lord showed courage and the Lord showed no fear to come riding into the city of Jerusalem. And they said, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord and blessed be uh, David in his kingdom. They believed this was the king right here and believed this was the kingdom. Again, why, why the ass, the, colt, the fold of an ass? Well, go to the book of Job, and you read in Job 11 and 12, where Job says, For man, for vain man wouldn't be wise, though he born like a wild ass's colt. A wild ass is typical of your nature. And you read the other portions of the book of Job about the wild ass, and you see where he, where he liked to live and where he liked to go. He, he describes him as a, as a wild beast out here. That's my nature. That's your nature. But I'm telling you, the Lord, when he born you, the Spirit of God, when he drawed you to him by his grace, he did for you exactly what he did. When he climbed on that ass, the colt, the fold of an ass, uh, that nature was conquered, brother. <laughs> There's only one that can conquer the old man nature, and that's God. Only one man that can conquer, only one person can conquer that human nature that you are conceived with and came in this world with. Mama can't conquer it. Daddy can't conquer it. Mother's brother, sister, son, daughter, friend, neighbor. Nobody can conquer that nature. Only God. That's why the Lord said in John 6, 44, using the verse that Brother Tim spoke on this morning, no man can come to me except, I love this exception, no man can come to me except, except God. Draw him. <laughs> No man can come unto God. No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. And that's, a, that's an omnipotent draw. That's an effectual draw. See, we oftentimes speak about believing in the effectual call. What do we mean by that? I mean, that's not actually a Bible phrase, effectual draw, but it is a Bible truth, a Bible principle. What do we believe about the effectual draw, the effectual call of God? What we simply mean by that is when God draws somebody, he's always successful in it. He's always successful in it. He draws you from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. You are an exception here this morning. By nature, you would never come to God. No man can come to me. That means no man, woman, or child can come to me except the Father which sent me. Draw him, and I'll do what? I'll raise him up again at the last day. 
John 6, 37, all the Father giveth me shall come to me. Isn't that a glorious gospel truth? They're all coming to him, my friends, because he knows where they're at. And sometime between their conception and their death, the Holy Spirit of God reaches into their heart and changes that from a stony heart to a heart of flesh, and they're raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Jesus Christ. For vain man would be wise. Yes, man would be wise, wouldn't he? <laughs> but he says in vain. For vain man would be wise, though he born like a wild ass's coat. That's how man is born. God conquers the human nature just like he conquered the nature of that animal when he comes riding him in into Jerusalem. You see God's omniscience. He knew exactly uh, where these two animals would be. He knew exactly uh, uh, what they would say to those men who went to get them. He told them exactly what they're saying to them. And he knew exactly what their response would be, which says, okay, go ahead. I want to go to Matthew chapter 17. In the last few verses of Matthew chapter 17, you're going to find where Jesus and Peter have an experience. And Peter had been talking to some people, and they asked Peter, they said, Doth not your master pay tribute? And Peter immediately said, Yes. Doth not your master pay tribute? That's tax money. And immediately he says, Yes. And then Peter's coming back to where the Lord is in the house. He's going to tell the Lord about this, but the Lord already knows all about it. And the Bible says Jesus prevented him. I mean, Jesus preceded him. Before Peter could open his mouth and start telling the Lord what just happened, the Lord asked Peter a question. He says, Peter, doth the kings of this earth receive tribute money of the children or of strangers? Peter says, well, of strangers. In other words, the kings didn't collect tribute money from their family, from their children. They collected from strangers. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is Son of the great King. He was King of Kings Himself. And the temple was God's house. Jesus telling Peter, from a technical point of view, I don't have to pay tribute. All right? I don't have to. But nevertheless, now this tribute money goes back to Exodus chapter 30. And you'll find in Exodus chapter 30 when God has given instructions how to build the tabernacle. He gave instructions that every man from 20 years old and older had to pay a half a shekel. No man, the rich paid not more, the poor paid not less. Everybody paid exactly the same, a half a shekel, which was just a very small amount of money, so everybody could afford it. From the poorest to the richest, okay? A half a shekel. The Lord doesn't even have a half a shekel. This story here tells me of the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter didn't have a half a shekel. Jesus didn't have a half, half a shekel to pay the tribute tax. But he says unto Peter, nevertheless, lest we offend them, lest we offend them, you go down to the sea and you cast in a hook. And the first fish that cometh up will have a coin in its mouth. And you take that coin that's in the fish's mouth and you go pay the tribute money for you and me. Now let's think about this for a minute. First of all, I want to tell you that Matthew, who wrote the book of Matthew, was a former tax collector. This miracle is unique in a lot of ways. This, is, this miracle is only recorded one time. It's right here in Matthew. 
A lot of other miracles, ones I've already been giving you this morning, are recovered in, uh, recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is only recorded in Matthew. Matthew was a former tax collector. You go read about his experience in Matthew 9, 9, you're going to find when the Lord came by where he was sitting at the seat of receipt of, of the customs. And he says, follow me. And Matthew got up immediately and followed him. Tax collectors among the most despised people in Jewish society because they believed they were traitors. They had sold themselves out to the Roman government and was collecting taxes from their own brother to give to the Roman government. And most of them, not all of them, but most of them were wicked men and they collected more than they're supposed to. They gave the Roman government what belonged to them and put the rest in their pocket. I do not believe Matthew was one of them. The Lord said, follow me. And Matthew immediately followed the Lord. And then he invited the Lord and more publicans, more tax collectors, and sinners to his house for a great feast. And the people that noticed that said, Why do you eat? Asked the Lord, Why do you eat with publicans and sinners? And the Lord said, I've called, come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And those Pharisees, my friends, were sinners like everybody else, but they didn't believe it. They thought they were righteous. And the Lord said, I didn't come call the right. I come to call sinners to repentance. I believe those that came to the feast, my friends, uh, had had an experience of grace. Yes, they had been former uh, uh, publicans and, and doing the things they shouldn't have done. But Matthew has called them to the house. And there's a great feast in the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting right there rubbing shoulders with publicans and sinners. <laughs> they don't get the wrong impression. The Lord Jesus Christ never rubs shoulders with the ungodly. The Lord Jesus Christ never rubbed shoulders with the wicked in this world. Those ones he sat down with right there, they'd already been touched by the finger of God's grace, my friends, and a change had coming about in their life. And the Lord sits right down there and he's having a feast that Matthew provides. Uh, we'll have to leave Matthew a little bit and get back over here to the Lord and Peter. So we come back to Matthew chapter 17. Now let's just go through a little sequence of events right here. First of all, this is Matthew's the only one that records this miracle. It's the only miracle in the Bible dealing with money, tribute money. It's the only miracle in the Bible dealing with one fish. This miracle is going to show the poverty of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he's born in this world, he's born wrapped in swallowing clothes and laid in a manger because there's no room for them in the inn. The Lord Jesus Christ was born into a family that was poor because Mary and Joseph came to bring an offering to the Lord, brought turtle doves and a pigeon, a poor man's offering. The Lord himself told those who said they'd follow him, he says, uh, let me let you understand something. The fox have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's pretty incredible, is it not? Especially when I read over here in Psalms 50, 10 through 12. The Lord here says, all the cattle upon the hills, uh, uh, all the uh, beasts of the forest and the cattle upon a thousand hills are mine. He said, all the beasts upon the mountains and the, and the fowls and, and the, uh, of, the, uh, of the air and all these things, they're mine. If I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the earth and the fullness there belongs to me. What doesn't belong to the Lord? Everything I got belongs to the Lord. He just let me use it. The Lord borrowed things, I'm just borrowing it myself, right? And, but I want to take care of what the Lord's enabled me to have, to be a good steward. I want to honor him in, with, uh, in, in every part of my life. I want to honor him with my substance, as Solomon said, to honor the Lord with thy substance and the first fruits of thine increase, that barns might be filled with plenty, and that, uh, uh, that uh, vineyard shall burst out with new wine. Wine presses. So, the Lord here tells Peter to go down to the sea. 
Now, Peter, this is the only miracle, the only time in Peter's life he uses a hook. All the rest of the time that Peter is found fishing, he's using a net. Here's the one time he uses a hook. So let's just think about something right here. In the Sea of Galilee, I've been there. It's eight miles wide, 13 miles long. Somebody had to lose a coin in that body of water. And a fish had to come along and get that coin and get it up in its mouth and not swallow it. And I doubt Peter was the only man fishing that day. I doubt he was. I imagine there was other people fishing that day. There's probably fishermen fishing with their nets like Peter and them used to do. There's probably people fishing with, with lines and hooks like uh, people did. But somehow or another, that fish is going to find Peter's hook. And he's going to bite Peter's hook without losing the coin. Sound like to me, this fish could be on America's Got Talent. <laughs> he's got to bite the hook without losing the coin. Peter brings him out without losing the fish. And that coin that's in the fish's mouth has got to be sufficient to pay a shekel for the taxes. Half for Jesus, a half for Peter. You say, Brother Lawrence, what a coincidence. <laughs> right. In the story. The Bible doesn't give us the results. Or does it? When I finish reading Matthew chapter 17, the last thing I read is what the Lord told Peter to do. You know why I believe Peter went and did it? Because I believe the word of God. And the Lord never would have told Peter to do something Peter wasn't going to do. The Lord wouldn't have went through all that and told Peter how to get this one thing and another. You think the Lord told me to go fishing and not catch a fish me a corn in his mouth. You think I'd go do something else? No, I wouldn't, my friends. I'd be right down there fishing hard as I can be. Pete says, it ain't going to be the second fish, the third fish, the tenth fish, the twentieth fish. It's going to be the very first fish that you bring up out of there. It's going to have a coin in its mouth. And, uh, and you take that coin and you go pay the tribute money. You pay it for me and you pay it for you. It's going to be worth exactly one shekel. That's one of the most amazing miracles. You know what else this teaches me? Since we don't have two services right now, I'm going to fudge a little. What's the Lord teaching these disciples? The Lord is teaching these disciples, you trust me for my providence. You trust me step by step along the journey of the way. In all three of these cases right here, the Lord gave detailed steps for them to take. And every step he told them to take, it was right there for them to take. And they took it. It came to pass just exactly like he said. Just exactly like it said. If the Lord could provide for Peter, and he did. How many times did he provide for Peter? He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He helped Peter, uh, enabled Peter to walk on water. Uh, he uh, got Peter out of prison in Acts chapter 12. Uh, he took him on the mountain of transfiguration. He was always performing miracles for, for Peter. And now Peter doesn't have a, a half a shekel to pay his taxes, and Jesus doesn't either. He says, go catch that fish. He'll have a coin in his mouth worth a shekel and you pay the tribute money for you and me as well. Now, if the Lord can take care of Peter, the Lord can take care of me and the Lord can take care of you, right? 
He took care of Elijah. He commanded the ravens to feed him in the morning, feed him in the evening. Provided two meals for him. There was a woman in 2 Kings chapter 4 that had a great debt. Her husband had died. She was a widow woman. She didn't have any money. He told her to take a, a pot. She had one pot of oil. He said, go borrow vessels, not a few, and you bring them here, and you take that pot of oil that you've got, and you pour it into all the vessels, and then you take and you sell it, and you and your, uh, and then you live on that and all the rest. If the Lord can bring a fish out of the sea with a coin in its mouth that somebody lost, that that fish got in his mouth, didn't swallow, found the correct hook to bite, got pulled out of the water. <laughs> Peter opens up, coin comes out. <laughs> Can you visualize it, brother? You ever been on a fishing trip like that? Somebody said, Peter, how, how'd you pay your taxes? He said, well, you ain't going to believe this one. <laughs> You ain't going to believe this one. I can just see him telling it now. You know, my friends, we need to be still enough right now in 2021 that when we hear, we listen. And when we look, we see. I will never forget the time that Karen and I went to get her driver's license. And they called her name, and she went and she got it, and she looked at it, and she just said, oh, this is horrible, this is terrible. You know how people are. And I rushed to her aid. I said, let me see. I said, well, I understand now what you're saying because it belongs to that woman sitting right over there. <laughs> she done made her mind up how it was going to be before she ever saw it. A little story I heard recently, I want to fit in right here, because the psalmist tells us, be still and know that I am God. There were some men doing some work, and they took the things that they had gotten and they stored it, put it in a building to be stored. And while they were in there and they came out, one man realized he lost his watch. So they all went back in the building trying to find the watch. Unsuccessful. Couldn't find it. So they come out. Little boy observing all this. Decided he'd go look. Little boy goes in the building, stays there a little while, and he comes out with the watch. They said, well, how did you find the watch? He said, I just went in and sat down and got real still so I could hear it ticking. When I heard it ticking... I knew where it was at. We need to stop long enough to hear the ticking, right? Yeah. 